welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Episode 56 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Nick Littlehales. So Nick Littlehales is a sleep coach and he's widely regarded as the world leading sleep coach in elite sport. And he's worked with the likes of uh, Formula One, Team Sky, both Manchester football clubs. He's worked with Liverpool, he's worked with Arsenal, you name it. In sport, they've probably worked with Nick. He's also an author and a TED speaker. And now he can finally add being a guest on the Proper Mental Podcast to that rather exclusive list. So Nick and I catch up, funnily enough, to talk about sleep. And I really, really wanted to do a sleep episode as part of this little project of mine. Because it's sleep's tricky, right? It's really, really tricky. And when it comes to all aspects of mental health, everybody knows that if we want to be mentally healthy, we need good quality sleep. We need to get enough sleep, right? But there's this kind of like weird thing in mental health is that when people are struggling, often the first thing to go is sleep. So we get in this situation where we know we really need it and we feel worse and worse every day from going without it. But at the same time, it just seems impossible to get. And it kind of even starts to add more pressure. That's how I've always felt with it in the past. You know, when my sleep goes and I have a bout of insomnia, I'm just so desperate for sleep and I'm trying so hard to get some sleep and almost the pressure to get some kip adds to me not feeling very well and adds to me not being able to get sleep. And I think a lot of people really, really relate to that. So I really wanted to do an episode where we kind of looked at sleep. You know, what is it? Why do we need it? How can we get more of it? And I've got some very specific reasons why I contacted Nick to chat to me about these things. Um, I'm a big fan of his work. I've known about him for some time and I actually use a lot of his um, tips and techniques myself. And they made a massive difference to me when I was pretty much existing on zero sleep and uh, my life was sort of crumbling around me. And I came across Nick on another podcast and I started bringing some of his work in and it made a huge difference. So I'm hoping that if you're listening and you need some sleep, you're going to get something from this too. But there's a few reasons I love Nick's work. One of them is because he doesn't ask you to bring anything in. You know, you don't have to go and buy a new bed. You don't have to spend money on an expensive supplement. You don't have to just change everything about your entire life. If anything, Nick's techniques allow you to get more out of your current life, which will make a lot of sense when you hear the episode and you hear how he goes about it. But by making some quite small and very actionable changes, you can really change how you sleep and what you get from sleep. And I think it's just one of those things that we've overcomplicated over the years. It always seems to me like the most basic human stuff is the stuff that we've overcomplicated. You know, sleep, water, food, sex, community. These are all the things that we really seem to have got out of control with but that's probably an episode (laughs) for another for another time I digress 
And something else that I really love about Nick's work is that he kind of moves away from this whole thing about eight hours. Usually the sleep conversation goes along the lines of you need to get eight hours, Kip, or you're going to have this wrong with you or this is going to happen or your life's going to finish early or whatever. And the only suggestions that go with that is like, go to bed earlier. But, you know, for a large section of the population, that's just not possible. And when you're struggling with your mental health and your sleep's out the window, that's really not possible. So we move away from this whole thing about eight hours and how to adjust to sleeping in a slightly different way, a more natural, a more rhythmic way. And I found for myself that was um, that was much more achievable. And I don't want you to be put off by the fact that Nick works with elite level sports people, because at the end of the day, they're just human beings and they sleep exactly the same as people who don't play elite sports. So don't worry about that. That's just where Nick chooses to work. But the process is the same. The other thing that we don't talk about on this episode is what happens when sleep isn't very good. Because I think that's something I've heard a lot of on the past when people talk about sleep. They're always like, oh, if you don't get your sleep, this is going to happen. If you don't get sleep, this is going to happen. And it's just this like long list of all this stuff that's awful about not getting sleep. I'm not a great sleeper. I'd hear stuff like that. And it would make me feel rubbish. And I just don't think there's any need for it. We all know there's not a human being alive who doesn't know that life's better if we get a bit more kip, right? So I don't think we need to dwell on the bad stuff. We're not trying to scare anyone into jumping into bed. It's all about how can we take what we've got and make it better. And yeah, Nick's just awesome. You don't get to do the things he's done and work with the people he works with unless you're your systems are spot on. You know, we talk about sleep. I don't need to tell you any more than that. It's all in the episode. I would highly recommend Nick's book. I've got a copy myself. I've read it. It's really, really good. Everything we talk about in this episode is in that book. And there's loads of other stuff as well, all in the same vein, all small, actionable, achievable steps. You can get it on his website. It's only about six quid. It's well worth buying. He's also got a TED Talk. I'll put the links to that in the episode notes. And again, that's fascinating. There's, again, a lot of stuff, a lot of crossover to this episode. But in the TED Talk, he gives more visual examples. So he does some stuff on like sleeping position and um, mattresses and that sort of stuff. It's Yeah, it's brilliant. Well worth a watch. Links in the episode notes. His website is sportsleepcoach.com and his Instagram is at underscore sportsleepcoach. You can get hold of me anywhere you like at Proper Mental Podcast or propermentalpodcast.com. Uh, there's links in the episode notes to all the different ways you can get hold of me and support the podcast. The main way to do that is by leaving me a few stars on iTunes or Spotify or even some kind words if you're feeling that way inclined. Other than that, let's get into it. This is episode 56 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Nick Littlehouse. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Nick Littlehales. How are you, mate? I'm very well. Thank you, Tom. And you? Yeah, very well, Nick. Very well. Thank you for asking. I'm uh, really excited about this one, mate. I've, I've got to say, I put on my Instagram story that we were going to have a chat and I asked my okay. followers if they had any sleep questions. And I've been absolutely inundated, mate. It's probably the best 
engagement I've ever had on a wow. uh, on a story question. Wow. <laughs> what was really, really interesting is that I'd say a good 60, 70 percent of those questions were very similar, if not the same. You know, people okay. seem to struggle with the same sort of stuff. Yeah. And it kind of got me thinking how so many people struggle with sleep, but just yeah. don't know what to do about it. You know, don't know the answers. And is that kind of what you see from your work? Do you see the same things coming up again and again? Yeah, I, I, I sort of fell into the industry a long time ago. I fell into the world of sports some 22 years ago. Um, and yeah, the story is still the same. There is progress being made, um, but some of it is a bit too clinical, a bit too unapproachable, a bit too, wow, sleep is really important, but how do I go about doing it? How do I reveal it? Uh, so I think that's why it's always been something that's taken for granted. So yes, it's uh, it continues to be a challenge for so many people, whatever occupation or part of your life you're in. Um, but there are there are things that you can do that can certainly help the process, Tom. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, I suppose just, you know, for a bit of context, really, how on earth did you get into this area in the in the first place? Because it's not a common a common role. It's not common what you do, right? <clears throat> no, I sort of um, loved sports as a teenager, was trying to do it professionally, had a little bout as a professional golfer for a short while, but basically just having a go at it rather than being successful. Uh, I fell into the sleep industry through a company that manufactured uh, sleeping products. Uh, graduated through their ranks pretty quickly. Uh, was an international sales and marketing director for them, you know, wandering around the world. Uh, they were big brands, so we were always looking into the correlation between sleep and bedrooms and products and things. So I came across a lot of people from the clinical world and all sorts of things. Um, I didn't have a UK sleep council, um, so I collaborated with a couple of other partners and, and we created the first UK Sleep Council. I was the chairman for that for a while. So I think that sort of journey got me to a particular sort of midlife crisis point, I think, in my early 40s, where I just thought, you know, this whole area taken for granted, nobody really cares about it. Um, this was back in the late 90s. And I decided I was going to leave and go off and do something completely different. Just so happened Strange set of circumstances. We were a local employee in Oldham, Manchester in the Northwest. Um, I got asked to sponsor the football shirts for the local football club, Oldham Athletic. Um, that put the company's name on the front of the shirt. That means I went along to a few football events as the guy with the, who writes the checkout. And I bumped into Alex Ferguson and Manchester United as a local football team in that area. Uh, we started talking. I was able to reveal some of the my sort of interpretations of sleep, my my sort of take on it, and that opened up conversations about recovery in elite sport with a bunch of footballers locally in Manchester, and and literally dialogue started to happen with physios and doctors. Um, we started to look at a few things, we started to interpret a few things, and you know. At that particular point, uh, a lot of those players at Manchester United were with the England squad. Um, so the England squad team got in touch with me. Uh, that happened to be a guy called Gary Lewin, who was a physio for the England squad, but also Arsenal Football Club. 
And uh, a new manager had come along called Arsene Wenger, who had a completely different approach. And they asked me to, to do a workshop with all the first team players. Um, and so literally, you know, word of mouth, somebody got hold of the fact that there was a guy talking to premiership footballers about sleep. So sleep and coaching, it's a sleep coach. And so they just said these pampered footballers have got a sleep coach now. Nobody understands what he's doing. Uh, all a bit tongue in cheek. And so I thought, well, that's me. I'm, apparently I'm a sleep coach, so I better make it up and get on with it. 22 late, years later, here we are. There you go. Seems to uh, seems to have worked out in the long run, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Arsene Wenger's got a lot to answer for, hasn't he? He kind of came in and changed a lot of things in football that, uh, you know, got him off the ale and <laughs> got him off the, uh, got him on decent oh, and all that sort of stuff. You know, not to sound old, old and crooked, but, you know, this is... This is late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, yes, it was the behaviour back then of even elite sport, never mind elite footballers, uh, approaches to health and well-being, to nutrition, to uh, exercise programmes, training programmes, sports psychologists, sports science, you name it, was not there in the slightest. So somebody like that was considered to be a complete and utter maverick, if somewhat not crazy, in the way he was handling elite premiership footballers. But there you go. Now it's common. Yeah. And way beyond it. You know, yeah. It's almost, it's almost old hat now, looking back at those days, you know, where we are today. Yeah, it is. If anything, it's kind of like flipped the other way. Because now because the internet and stuff, like normal everyday people can pick up more and more like professional style training habits, you know, like no one exercising oh. anymore. Everyone's training and, you know, people yeah, talk yeah. about nutrition and, and stuff like that. But I thought what might be useful, mate, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit further down the line about, um, you know, about what could what kind of goes wrong with sleep and what we can do about it. But what I thought might be interesting to start with is, could we have a little a look at what is, I suppose, supposed to happen? So if conditions are optimal, what's happening with our bodies through sleep? Like what's going on with our, what does our brain want? What's going on with our physiology and our biochemistry through the, you know, through these waves of sleep that we're supposed to be surfing through the night? I think there's a, one of the first things that we, we first need to understand is there's, there's no education around sleep. So parents don't pass it on to children in their formative growth years. Teachers aren't talking about it in school, universities, whatever. A lot of the medics, GPs, surgeons, wherever you go, have very little um, uh, time spent in that particular area. So basically, there's a lack of understanding. The, the, the second thing is, you know, we're human beings with brains and bodily functions. There is a thing that happens on a 24-hour rolling basis called the circadian rhythms of our day. And that is simply the sun rolling around the planet. Now, that is about light, dark, and temperature shifts, to keep it simple. Now, that the sun does this and triggers the start of the day and the end of the day. And human beings are completely synchronized to that process. Now, over our journey on this planet, we've just, because we're able to as human beings, We've just been moving further and further away from the natural rhythms of that process, which is principally sunrise, midday, sunset, round you go again. So the first thing we have to understand is what, what sleep is. It's a percentage of human recovery in that 24-hour period. It's normally around 30-odd percent. So in a 24 hours, around sort of eight hours when you reach adulthood, 
you know, as you're going through your formative growth years, you need a lot more sleep and the brain's in control. So once you reach that particular point of about 30 odd percent, so if you're mentally and physically active, you've also got to be mentally and physically in recovery active activities. And one of those is sleep. Now, the brain takes over when you go into sleep. You're not in control of it, right? So a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to get my eight hours tonight. So they get in bed with their PJs on and switch the lights off and go, right, let's get eight hours. Well, the brain just is only going to reveal what you have been doing as your own behavior from the point of wake. So it's this synchronized relationship with start and end, start and end. So principally, what you always need to understand is that when your brain takes over, what it wants to do is to be able to take you into what's called the deeper sleep stages. Um, now, these are considered to be more rejuvenative. Uh, they repair in all sorts of mental and, and physical ways and, and biological functional ways. Now, in deep sleep, um, you are at your most vulnerable as a human being, right? So the, the factors involved being able to get down into that deep sleep you can trigger out of those very easily. So as you mentioned, there are various stages. So what the, when you present yourself to sleep and the brain takes over, what it's starting to do is check all the boxes. Like, are you still digesting foods? What types of foods? Are you still processing fluids? And what types of fluids? Are you still, you know, creating that sort of download of, of uh, stress, anxiety, thoughts, worries, whatever that might be. Uh, and so all those little factors have to fall into place. And then, so these stages are about drowsiness, light sleep, the deeper sleep stages. And it's a bit like going down a set of stairs, Tom. You're at the top of the stairs. Here you are presenting yourself to sleep and the brain takes over and it wanders down the stairs. And at the bottom of the stairs is this lovely deep sleep, right? Now, you're only going to get around 20% deep sleep in any period of time, whether that's an hour or 10 hours, right? So to go into that little area and enjoy that and then come back and go through the process again is what this is about, the rhythms of stages. Now, you can get stuck in light sleep stages because the brain is not prepared to take you into that deep sleep because you're so vulnerable. I mean, I could come into your bedroom and you wouldn't know I was there, Tom. But in light sleep, I wouldn't get through your front door, right? Right. So what's happening is, is if you can get into that deep sleep, so all the stages are beneficial, but the deeper sleep stages basically sort of, for want of a better word, they put you in a sort of like paralysis state everything has shut down you know everything has gone into a place where it's just sort of barely functioning so the brain and everything else can start to repair muscles deal with sugars salts all sorts of this cortisol adrenaline everything that's going on that whole business of anxiety and stress and everything else so basically you want to think that like when you when you're going down into that deep sleep you're getting a full recharge on your device. You know, you're getting a full recharge and now you're ready to go for the day. If you get stuck in light sleep, you're kind of, you've got a 30% charge on your device and you're kind of having to be a little bit resourceful with your energy throughout the day. 
because you could easily crash or lose focus or lose fatigue or become in all sorts of ways. So it, it's a big old question, but mm. what happens when you go into sleep is basically that is a time that your brain takes over and basically repairs and replenishes and rejuvenates absolutely everything you could think of in your whole, whole human functionality. And wow. it sort of sets you up that a lot of people think that they might lead or try to lead a very healthy lifestyle, but they don't seem to get the full benefits. And that's because your brain is constantly adapting. It's constantly adjusting to your behavior from the point of wake. So while it keeps doing that, which is brilliant at doing, it never really gets that opportunity to do the other thing it likes to do, and that is to repair us. So, you know, it's, it's kind of why people get very frustrated with the quality of their sleep is because they do feel the effects of not being fully recharged. And as that keeps going on, eventually you end up with a duff battery and it only lasts a few hours, even if you've got it fully charged. Yeah, sure. And although that, I mean, although there's obviously a lot going on there, it doesn't sound particularly complicated, really, considering no. what's happening behind the scenes. So why is it so hard? Well, how do we mess that up, you know, as modern humans? What's, where, where are we going wrong? Well, it's, it's like this little bit of understanding. You know, what we know is we've got um, sunrise. The sun doesn't care about our behavior on this planet. It simply rolls around and it creates a light and dark shift. And our relationship with that is very important about two particular hormones called serotonin and melatonin. And serotonin is lit up by light. And that's basically all your functionality, happy and all that sort of stuff. And melatonin is a suppressing hormone that sort of tries to shut everything down. Now, these two hormones are only telling the brain what it should be doing. The brain will still ignore it if there's other things going on, right? So what we have is you should have a consistent start to your day, right? a consistent wake time. You know, it's not like I wake at 6.30 every day and, you know, it's like a consistent start to your day. Um, you need plenty of light to stimulate that serotonin. So lots of blue light, lots of daylight, whether you get that outside or you have to bring it inside. You need to start the day, fuel up, hydrate, bowel and bladder, you know, a slight, uh, you know, delayed start into your tech world just to make sure that you've done everything to bring you as a human being into this world, right? Fully functional. And then you crack on with your day. There's lots of recovery opportunities, but we've been ignoring them, right? We used to have them back in the 90s. They weren't planned for. They were just there because you couldn't fill gaps. So I could only people watch waiting for a taxi. Now I can send emails and do podcasts, right? So it's kind of what you have to understand is these little tiny micro breaks, right? Every hour, every 90 minutes, as we like to look at it, just pointing the brain in a different direction for a couple of minutes. It's about visualization. It's about a different set of emotions that's created by those things. It's about thinking that, you know, your best friend, your best imaginary friend, but it's not imaginary, is your brain. And you understand that it wants lots of little breaks. 
it wants to get fueled up and hydrated and challenged and lots of light to get it going. Otherwise, it keeps adapting. You know that by midday you need and into early evening, you need lots of this light because otherwise it's trying to compensate for you being in what's called a melatonin land rather than a serotonin land. And then when you get round to sort of like phase three of your 24 hours that evening into midnight, you need to be encouraging sort of a diminished light environment. It's not inactive, but you need to be encouraging that other hormone to start being dominant in your evening. So that, and you also need to think about, you know, have you given your brain enough opportunities to, to deal with all the constant bombardment of social interactions and information and challenges that you're putting in front of yourself? And so it, that's where it goes wrong, is because we don't have any sort of structure to our rolling 24. We kind of think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Or, you know, we work multi-shifts. We, we not only have a day job, we might have an evening job doing podcasting or an online shop or... You know, and we go to the gym at all sorts of different times. We, we, we push our boundaries. You know, we start doing a little couch to 5K. And before three months, we're doing marathons. <coughs> so we tend to have a culture that, of course, live every day to the full. Nobody's arguing about that. Live every minute, maybe if it was your last minute, you know, to enjoy everything that you're doing and everything you're planning to do now and for the future. But at the same time, you need to understand that there are two things that will never change. If they do, we will not be on this planet. And that is the sun rolling around your postcode, creating a light, dark and temperature shift. It creates rhythm and pattern and harmony. Your brain is completely synchronized to that process and the more you keep that, those two things far apart, the more you're going to suffer. And if every decade or every month or every season, you keep putting things in front of that, then you will not go faster. You will not be more productive. You'll gradually, gradually become a diminished person that you should be. And, and that's what we try to avoid in sport. And I think you try to avoid that in life. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I suppose it's quite interesting, actually, when you say, you know, we still want to have that life and do all the stuff that we want to do. But I suppose how we do it is we do all that stuff and then just try and squeeze the sleep in in the gaps and hope for the best. Whereas if we looked after the sleep, it would probably enable us to get more out of the other stuff if we did it the Abs other way around. Absolutely, Tom. I think when you asked me earlier on about, you know, you know, has things changed so much? Yes, there's somebody like yourself who's, describing the situation very eloquently and, and that's great for the conversation for everybody because you just look at that and consider it. It, it it's not about going slower it's not about doing less it's just knowing that you can't just squeeze this in you know you can't just that's where everybody they wake up in the morning whether they've slept well or not or at all they crack on with their day and then they get round to a point there's only so many hours left before they're going to do it again, if you're lucky and you're not a multi-shift worker. And, and you just expect it to happen. And yet 
It's like going to the gym with a pair of Wellington boots on, a big woolly jumper, a furry hat and some gloves, and climbing onto the treadmill, and nobody tells you that you've got the wrong stuff on, and that's going to be quite damaging. It is a little bit like we just wander into this as if it's it's something you can just switch on and off, and that's, you know, if you eat burgers and chips, that's all you eat, and you only drink fizzy pop. At some point, your body constantly adapting to that process will show you the signs. So we know these things, don't we? If we don't hydrate well enough, we get headaches, we, we underperform, we don't feel well, we don't do this. And if we don't eat for a few days, we know about it, don't we? So it's kind of like what I would suggest to anybody is, is what we've been, I've been certainly pursuing in sports is you've got these health pillars. I think we're all aware of these, like the sleep stages, you know, and we've got eating well and drinking well and exercising well. And then this sort of sleeping well sort of is fourth or fifth. It's sort of over there, isn't it? Eat well, sleep well, drink well. It sort of sits up. Well, what we've done is made it the first health pillar. Because if you change your mindset, your perception of what sleep actually is, it's not as we've been describing. Just at the end of the day, you cram it in. If you take it more as a human recovery yeah, process, performance thing, you change your mindset about it and you use it to your advantage from the point of wake to the next point of recovery, then things start to change. And that means if you're recovered, if you're optimizing your recovery mentally and physically, however that looks, you know, because we have polyphasic approaches, monophasic approaches, you know, approaches that maybe a lot of your listeners won't even be aware of because it should have been taught at school. But what happens is when you go through that process, everything you eat gets processed better. Every, every exercise you do gets processed better. Every time you get something that's quite negative or quite positive, you deal with it in a more beneficial way rather than overreacting or underreacting. So what happens is when we ever get the recovery optimized, everything else seems to get even better. If you do those other things and not the recovery bit, then it, it always looks as though we're letting ourselves down. We should be the healthiest, most knowledge population that's ever walked on this planet. Something tells me we're not in that place. No, very much. If anything, we're sliding the sliding the other way, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I was thinking about this earlier, like the conversation around sleep, it very much tends to be the most of the stuff that's out there on social media or whatever, it seems to be like, you've got to get more sleep or you're going to die 10 years younger. You're going to get cancer. You're going to put on weight and struggle to lose it. So go and get eight hours. And straight away, most modern humans say, well, you know, I can never do that. And it pushes them away from the conversation. It doesn't invite them into the conversation. There's no solution to that, that sort of statement. Yeah. And something that I've heard you talked about that was massively beneficial to my life, particularly after I had kids and any sort of idea of sleep just kind of went haywire, was yeah. looking at um, cycles and that monophasic, the polyphasic, sorry, um, polyphasic way of, of sleeping yeah. that you mentioned before. And I was wondering if we could just uh, explore that a little bit, Nick, because that gave me a lot of control over something that I thought was um, uncontrollable. And I started instigating, you know, CRPs, as you call them, into my day. And things changed for me drastically. Whereas before that, 
I was desperately trying to get eight hours and then the baby would cry and then I couldn't get back to sleep. And then the next day I'd be like, Oh, I only had four hours. And I'd beat myself up about that till like lunchtime till enough coffee kicked in for me to crawl through the afternoon. But as soon as I was able to like take control of that by using some of the things I heard you talk about, it was an absolute game changer for me. And I was just wondering if we could explore that a little bit, because I think that would be a game changer for some people listening as well. I think the fascinating thing is sometimes the, the use of words and you use the word desperate, which kind of indicates it wasn't that good. Um, you, in, you sort of use the word, you know, drastically changed. Now, that's a real sort of doing word. Isn't it? it drastically changed. I mean, oh, this is time. not just a bit. Uh, we use the word game changer if it's a bit of fun these days. Isn't it? But you use that word as well. I think anybody listening is is to to take on board your own personal experience because it's not some elite personal sleep coach telling you you've got to eat like this or Joe Wicks this or whatever it might be that you know it's uh, which is all great but it's it's in this particular area it's just understanding a few functional things and one of those things is. Um, I was always fascinated that up until the electric light bulb came along, um, humans always slept in a, what's called a polyphasic way. And that's twice a day, three times a day, four times a day, six times a day, because they were completely in tune with sunup, midday, sunset, and the rolling 24 hours. So we didn't have this electric light around that would disturb that process. So we slept, not in the perceived way you think today, but we had lots of recovery opportunities. And we did things differently. So we'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning and be active for a bit, you know, because that was part of this circadian rhythm, you know? Deep sleep's only really revealed between around 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning in our world. So when they were totally synchronized to that, they would fall asleep, do a few cycles, wake up, be active, do a few cycles, grab a little, you know, you call them CRP. So they were they were not doing it proactively. It's just that they were more synchronized. So when you look, like you said, like, well, I was an international salesman. What about a nurse? What about a parent? What about a pilot? What about a doctor? Um, what about politicians? I mean, what about, how, you know, how do people just run away from this thing? You're going to die if you don't get eight hours. So I thought, well, when you actually look at it, there's a lot of people doing this polyphasic approach, but they don't know they're doing it. They don't know why it's happening. And so they get very worried that they're doing something like that when they should be doing it in another way. So I think the great thing is to understand that what's called monophasic sleeping has only ever happened once. It happened when we invented electric light, which is not that long ago. And as soon as we did that, we started trying to sleep in one block at night when we never used to. And as we've continued to bring technology and 24-7 and all of those other factors and social behavior and relationship, bring all of those factors in over the last couple of decades, we're putting that one block at night thing under so much pressure that it's revealing how potentially there's a better way of doing it. So I sort of tend to come with it. If we're all running away from this eight-hour thing and we're going to die after six, there's no solutions there. So can we not try and 
use some things from not that long ago, like circadian rhythms and understanding that, and chronotypes that we have a, a morning or an evening genetic twist to our behavior within that 24 hours. You know, some people love the mornings and some people love the evenings and could be wide awake at 12 o'clock, very creative. I wonder what that's about. And then the cycles thing was, was really quite straightforward. In a clinical environment, um, the clinician would look why are you all up and look at the first 90 minutes, right? And going back to those stages. So what they're looking for in that 90 minute period is how much time you spend in all of these little stages and how they reveal themselves, either at the front, in the middle or the back. Right? And that's just your brain rolling into that period, right? Some people might go into deep sleep quite quickly and then come out of it and spend a lot of time in light sleep. And the reason, then they would look at the next 90 minutes. Right? So, and then they look at the next 90 minutes because as you've gone into a sleep state and your brain is rolling you through these stages, they start to, the amount of time you spend in these stages starts to change from the first 90 minutes into the next 90 minutes. So five 90 minute cycles is 7.5 hours. Now there's your eight, but we're thinking five 90 minute cycles. And the first cycle is different to the second cycle, to the third cycle and the fourth cycle. So you're most likely to wake in the fifth cycle and switch the alarm off or the alarm will wake you up. You're kind of going to be a little bit restless in the fourth cycle because your brain is already getting ready to wake because the sun's coming back. The third, the second and third cycle could very much be dominated by deep sleep because it's in that sort of between 10 and 2E area, whether you go to bed at 11 or whatever it is. You know? Okay, interesting. There might be a, a longer period at the first cycle because some people might find it difficult to get into sleep. Some people just crash into sleep. Now that's their behavior or their chronotype kicking in. So when you start to look at it like that, it's something, well, that's easy. If I chop my day up into my 24 hours into 90 minute cycles, I get 16 timings. That gives me an opportunity to identify a consistent wait time against my chronotype. I'm an AMer, so mine's 6.30, you know. For a nighttime person, that might be a bit later. Chop my day up, that gives me little subconscious moments every 90 minutes to take a little CR pre, just a little two-minute visual break, or to create a little moment just for me and my brain. It allows me to think a little bit polyphasically and think, well, maybe I could do four cycles, you know, into 6.30, and that'd be six hours. But if I can sleep all the way through, and me and my brain are much happier about that, and I have maybe a little 30-minute cycle, because that's 30% of a 90-minute cycle. So you don't start drifting into the deep sleep, but there's an element of recovery. So if I could have a 30-minute cycle late afternoon and four solid cycles nocturnally, so I'm thinking biphasic now, I get more out of phase three, me and my brain are more protective, so I get a better quality of recovery in the 24 hours. And all I've really got to do is find that little 30 minutes late afternoon. And initially you go, well, I ain't got time for that. I haven't got time for this and I haven't got time for that. I haven't got time. But then suddenly you realise you waste so much time doing so many things, waffling, over-exaggerating things, you know, being late for something or just this. It's so much stuff. And what you then realise is those little tiny breaks and that little bit of, 16 timing structure and thinking cycles 
And then I think what probably happened to you is you suddenly then your perception of sleep changes and you start to think 35 cycles in every seven days. Where are those cycles? Four on Monday night, one Tuesday afternoon, little ones every 90 minutes. And suddenly you start to, what happens is you stop worrying about it. And if you stop worrying about it, oh, I'm only going to get two cycles tonight. Well, it doesn't matter because you can just slot that there, slot that there. It's not catch up or sleeping later. But you suddenly start going, yeah, I'm on a 35 cycle routine doing little CRPs, uh, little tiny things. And I don't even I don't even think about I'm going to sleep on Friday. You know, it's irrelevant because I just keep doing what I'm doing and it'll just reveal itself all the time. Yeah, sure. I should probably mention, actually, because I'm talking to you as someone who knows a bit about your work, but CRP stands for controlled rest period, doesn't it? Recovery a, period. Yeah. Or recovery period, yeah. Some so, people would have classed it as a nap. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. naps, naps are a consequence of a poor approach. So we, we don't talk naps, we talk CRPs. Yeah, sure. Because I found that, um, yeah, like the worrying aspect of it. So I would wake up at funny times. And it's a question that a lot of people asked on that Insta poll I was saying about, you know, it's like, um, oh, can you ask him when I wake up at half three, uh, how do I get back to sleep? And I think what you would say if I asked you that was, don't worry about it. Because <laughs> that's... Oh, a- yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you'll get, we'll get shouted at, so, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of, I think... Once you sort of, you know, so my my 24 hours, because I'm a morning chronotype, the start of my day is 6.30. Day's chopped up into 60, 90-minute cycles. So a five-minute, a five, 90-minute cycle between 11 and 6.30, right? But I might choose 12.30, which is the next cycle on, into 6.30 and six cycles. I might have things going on during the week, go out with friends or if it's a summer riding bikes till late at night, whatever. So I might choose 2 a.m. into 6.30. And that's just four and a half hours. But what I'm always doing is using midday or late afternoon or all the little CRPs just to keep that all in balance. I'm not looking to try and increase it or keep it low. I know that around 28, 90-minute cycles back-to-back is fine, combined with about seven other shorter periods, right? And they will reveal themselves as I wander through my week. So if I wake up, uh, you know, 6.30 is supposed to be the start of my day. Normally I'd wake up, you know, maybe 5.36, 5 past 6. But I'm always switching the alarm off. So it's not I'm waking up at absolutely 6.30. But I start my day at 6.30, you know, hydrate, fuel up and all that sort of stuff. Loads of light. So if I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, Nobody wakes up in the night and doesn't look at the clock because they want to know what time it is. It could be close to needing to get up or it could be quite early. So if I wake up and I'm like, oh, it's three o'clock, oh, well, that's just natural. I must have had a good little period because I feel awake. So I must have had a few little rolling cycles there where the brain took over, had a little nice moment. I mean, I did have a good day yesterday. So it's had a good little time and we've had enough. And because maybe there was a noise outside or a kid's bark, dog's barking or a little bit of body temperature or a thought crops up in your head and you just flipped out and you feel like, woo, I could go to work. I could do anything. That's where you need to stop. And all you do is just remain in a chilled out state. You don't have to be sort of, but, but 
you know, make some nice lunch for tomorrow or iron a shirt or, or sit and read a book or listen to some music or watch some David Attenborough. You know, just just don't overstimulate yourself and just chill, even if it's in bed or out of bed. Normally, it's better to probably get out. And then what you'll find is the more you stop worrying about that process and use it reasonably positively, be out overstimulating, then sleep onset will come back. And it'll start to knock on your door and you'll put your head back on the pillow and might get one cycle or one and a half cycles back into your normal start of the day. But it's, it's if you try and force yourself back into sleep, it ain't going to happen. You know, you just have to sort of go, I'm actually awake in this period. Don't worry about it. Just be cool about it and it will come back. And as soon as you start having that confidence, you know, it's amazing uh, how when you, it's almost, it's a bit like, you know, you can fall asleep behind the wheel of a car or a truck on an autobahn or a motorway. Now, how nuts is that? You know, so what you get, you get is your brain will quite happily do the things it wants to do. And if you push it, it'll keep adapting, but eventually it'll take over and start doing things that you don't want it to do. So if you're wandering around with a load of fatigue, it will just take the opportunity with constant visualization, noise, sounds, van truck, van truck, van truck, even the most dangerous places you could ever be. And it'll just go, right, I'll microsleep you. So don't be worried if you're awake, just help your brain to go, that's fine. I'm not worried, you're not worried. Let's do a few things. It'll take over again. Go bang. If you try and push it, it'll just get worried. And then some people go, oh, I'm going to the gym early. Or I'm going to start working or getting on technology. And that's that's the death of you. Yeah, That's sure. when you've reset a new you that's very difficult to get back out of. Yeah, because I suppose a lot of people wake up at a funny time and they instantly go, oh, I was trying to get eight hours, only got four. Now my day's going to get, now my day's going to be rubbish because we see it as that start and end point of that eight hours. We don't look at all the other hours yeah, as a potential. Like, so if you see the sort of 24-hour uh, worker and they're working through the night because we like to order things at 10 o'clock and get them the following day, don't we? You know, so we're a 24-7 world. So the people who are working at night, like nurses and surgeons and, and, and retail online retail workers, right? they sleep during the day. Now, if they woke up sort of midday after a couple of cycles and couldn't get back to sleep, nobody would nobody would care. It wouldn't even be a conversation, would it? Oh, I woke up at 12 o'clock midday and I couldn't get back to sleep. Well, it's the middle of the day. Why would you be sleeping? Well, because I work at night. It's only because if you flip the clock around, just always remember the sun does not disappear from your postcode. Uh, it's certainly gone now. It's, what are we, we're up to five o'clock in the UK. I'm in Nottingham and it's dark. So the sun's gone, right? Now it's on, it's going away from my postcode, but I'm still remaining active for many hours this evening. By the time I go to sleep, it's already on its way back. That's why it's one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. So just because it's dark, just because it feels like nighttime and it's not that phase three evening bit where we still like to be active, the sun is already coming back to wake you up. So it's not surprising 
that anybody would trigger out of sleep when the sun's already knocking on your door. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Does that kind of, because you, you know, you mentioned the importance of, of light and what that does to us. Is that where like um, the sad disorder comes from and things yeah. like that? Because I think that's, you know, a lot of the symptoms of that are very, um, they're very similar to a lot of poor mental health symptoms and stuff like that. Is that a factor of light and how can we, would you go for supplements in that case or do we chase that natural light? Like, well, how do we, how do we kind of play oh, that? Just, just, just uh, obviously chase the natural light, but also you can use synthetic versions of that because we have this thing like daylight saving time. We shift it. It doesn't happen all over the world. Uh, it's a very small percentage of the population, like 60 odd percent who are affected by daylight saving time. We didn't introduce it for human performance. It was introduced to, to create more weapons in war years. Well, so it's actually an anti-human thing. And I hope the next generation will get rid of it um, because a lot of the world doesn't get impacted by it. And the seasonal affective disorder is basically because we shift from like, I'm sitting here talking to you and it's dark. Now in May, April, it's gonna be absolutely bright for the next four or five hours. I'll be riding my mountain bike at 10 o'clock at night. You know what I mean? So this shift of exposure, and what I mentioned before is that basically inside daylight, um, it's probably another podcast, Tom, but the principle is that if you spent all your time outside as a human being, you would be in what's called a hundred thousand lux. And that is the light from daylight. And that's Lumen's lux. Now inside that daylight is a blue light energy light. And that blue light triggers serotonin in your brain to be produced that tells your brain to unsuppress everything. You take that light away, right, that blue light, and you produce melatonin, which tells the brain to suppress. Now, if you do, if you can't be outside, you know, so you sleep outside, whenever we go camping up into the mountains and stuff like that, wow, doesn't it change our perspective? because we become more aligned to those light shifts and the effects of it. If you wake up in the dark in your bedroom, you've got none of this serotonin being produced. So you would need like a dawn wake simulator lamp, a little lamp on your desk that produces what's called 10,000 lux. Now that's because if you're outside all the time in 100,000 lux, your average exposure would be around 10,000 lux sunset, sunrise to sunset. So you kind of think every 90 minutes, that should be an average of about a thousand lux, right? So you can get little light meters on your phones. I do this with young athletes all the time. Get a little free light meter onto your phone. It'll put a little dial on your phone, use the camera, and it'll just measure the amount of light around you in lux. And it'll fluctuate as you move around your house and go outside. And I just show people like in your bedroom with a curtain shut, that might be good for melatonin land and going to sleep, but you've blocked out any light whatsoever to wake you naturally. So it's a real struggle to get going. So you wander around, it's like 200 lux in the office. It's 200 lux in the kitchen. It's 300 lux over here. If I step outside, it's 80,000 lux. If I'm by that window, it's nearly 7,000 lux. If I've got that little lamp, it's like 10,000 lux. So the sort of thing about shifting through the seasons, and dealing with this very difficult period, 
which not only changes our eating habits, our behavior, our exercise levels, everything starts to get diminished, is that you use the light to keep your brain synchronized with something natural because your brain and the sun doesn't know about daylight saving time. Yeah, sure. We invented it, but we invented it. So that's that's just not happening. It's still going around like that. We just shift the timings. You go, why are we doing that? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's one of it's you know, if it doesn't exist in nature, you know, then your brain doesn't kind of your subconscious brain doesn't know what it is, you know. That no. tends to be the the way it goes. That leads me into uh, there's one thing I really wanted to um touch on with you, Nick, before I let you go, mate. I hope that's okay. But it's this idea of environment. So you mentioned like blackout blinds then, and there's a lot of talk about blacking the curtains out, bedroom at a certain temperature, creating this seems to be this theory that we can create this environment that's going to encourage sleep. Is there something in that to some extent, or are we better off just focusing on following the light, working out our cycles, taking some you know vacant mind space throughout the day? Um, the R90 technique, which I basically work around and, and developed and everything else, takes you on a little journey of seven steps. Circadian rhythms, your chronotype, sleeping in cycles, uh, pre and post routines, with post routines being the most important start to your day, a balance between mental and physical activities and mental and physical recovery activities. Number six is environment. Number seven is products. What most people do, the reason for mentioning that, is they try to dive in to isolated solutions, right? You know, this is not working for me. So get a new mattress, get a new pillow. I don't know, listen to binaural beats, listen to, you know, whales singing, listen, sensory oils, anything you can get your hands on these days, supplements, melatonin supplement. You try to think, well, I'll do that, that'll sort it. You know, wear some eye masks, do this, whatever. Do that, it'll sort it. And once you go along that little journey, what you pointed out, it's what you do before you get anywhere near that bedroom, right? Bedrooms normally have other human beings in it, which we don't like sleeping with other human beings. We like the sex and the, the security and the spooning and the partnership and everything else. But when we fall asleep, we turn away from each other and go, just leave me alone. So having another human being, we try to, you know, you, know, you mentioned blackout. Oh, get blackout. Yes, blackout creates a melatonin world. It doesn't wake you up, so you need a lamp. If you're gonna have blackout, have a lamp, or ideally buy a house that's got a bedroom that faces the sunrise and just leave the curtains open and let it do it naturally, you know what I mean? It's those sort of things. What I always say to people is, is I have been coaching people to sleep anywhere, anytime, on anything, in any way, because that's what humans do. Just look at humans all over this planet. Right? in all the different environments that we sleep in, whether it's temperature, security, whatever it is, from the North and South Poles to very hot countries to all sorts of things. And so what I think we all understand is, and it's back to that nature and the brain again, Tom, which you just pointed out, is if it's natural, if I grab hold of you after a very busy morning, and we just go and sit by the lake or sit by the river or sit in the woods or sit in the cup, you know, anywhere, you know, even in a little park. And we just sit there. And strangely enough, life's not that bad in a very short space of time. 
Now, whether that's a bit more serotonin being produced because we're outside, whether that's a bit of nature and the CRP visualization creating a little bit more calm instead of anxiety, all of those sort of things. We suddenly know when we go camping, whether you like camping or not, there's no security from that tent. There's nothing on the floor that's bought from some special mattress company. And, and, and we wander around sort of getting the most out of the first part of the day, the most out of the second part of the day. And then the evening sort of is very much about winding down and shutting down. And off you go. So I think what I would say to anybody is just imagine taking absolutely everything out of your bedroom in your head and then putting back things that you know about or could find out about or listen to your podcast about that might make sense to your ability for you and your brain to go and grab and optimize your recovery. And you think about bringing the outside in, not the cold and the rain and the snow and the very hot, but you think about bringing the outside into that room. Colors, visuals, pictures, pot plants, yeah, anything you could think of that makes that feel a little bit more of a natural environment for you, or you and your brain, a little bit more, you know, less stimulating, but less, more a relationship, dirty big picture on the wall of a beautiful lake and trees can be amazing visualization as you're wandering into that particular area and having natural things in your bedroom is very comforting and calming and all sorts of stuff. So that's what I would always, it's not about how thick your mattress is, how many springs or whatever foam it's got in it or how many people sleep on it and all that sort of stuff and pillows, yada, 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 yada. You know, I can, I can, the whole process is being able to sleep hanging off the side of a mountain in a sack if you're a professional mountaineer, you know. Yeah, which which they do, right? Which is exactly what they. Uh, I don't, I don't think do. you've ever come across a mattress or a pillow or a, a supplement that compensates for being a parent. <laughs> no, not at all. No. Not in the uh, not in the slightest. Uh, there you go. Like you said before, that's probably a whole other <laughs> podcast on its own. Yeah. But um, Nick, mate, that was absolutely, absolutely wonderful, mate. Thank you so much for that. I think there's going to be a lot there that people, I wanted to give people stuff they could take away and implement yeah. rather than just saying like, this is good. This is bad. You know, like that, like I say, that doesn't help people. So yeah, I think there's a lot of really actionable advice there, mate. And I really, really appreciate your time. No problem at all, Tom. Thank you very much. mental podcast please like and subscribe the space star